0: Welcome.
1: Hello, this is Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast, and this is Chris John Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. You're listening to the official podcast for the 26th Annual First Conference, the 22nd through the 27th of June 2014, in Boston, Massachusetts. And now we join our interview in progress. So this is Martin and Chris, and we're talking to Gene Spafford, who's a professor at Purdue University, and Gene just gave the keynote speech this morning at first. Gene, you kind of had a a little bit of a negative message for us, which is that, uh, you know, 20 years later, since you last gave a keynote at, at first, and as long as you've been in security, you're starting to see things, or you're continuing to see things go downhill, and you see a lot of problems
0: with that. Uh, that's correct. I see that we continue to do a lot of response. We do a lot of patching. We do a lot of add-on, add yet more layers. But fundamental issues aren't addressed because they're hard and they're expensive. And people would much rather move ahead with the incremental uh, rather than to go back and look at the fundamental
1: So, but looking at the fundamental would require actually rethinking how we do some things from the ground up. And that's hard work. I mean, as you said, it's expensive. Where, if we really want to do that, looking at the fundamental, where would you say is the very first place you think we need to start?
0: Well, all of this is connected together. It's an ecosystem. So I'm not sure that it's simple to say a first thing, but. I believe that one of the most critical issues to be addressed is a basic understanding that not all systems are equal. We don't need to have the same system across every role in the enterprise. That's cheaper on acquisition and training and uh, adding some applications. But the system that is doing the core processing of corporate secrets – Our nuclear command and control should not be the same one that's being used for word processing, uh, storing recipes, and surfing the web, because they have different purposes, they have different needs, and they should be built to different standards. So really, I think one of the first steps is going to have to be fundamentally getting through to management and to the operational personnel that there are different classes of systems and different needs and we should be uh, looking at different specifications and requirements for those different kinds of systems. But if you look
1: at systems that are different, if you look at car systems, if you look at medical systems, they're not being reviewed with greater stringency and greater security requirements than a desktop system is. How do we, ach- how do we change that? How do we affect that system from, from just one of the points where we need to increase security?
0: Well, I think the problem with the reviewing of those systems, the determination that's made, is you still have people who grew up with general purpose systems, and so they still have a bias towards, okay, well, you know, what general purpose system with additions is going to fit this need? Um, the average person who's making those decisions or looking at those may have only used a total of three operating systems in their lives. My view is a little different because I've used, at last count, something like 32 and written 2, and so I have a very different view as to what that can be. Uh, Same thing with word processing, with computer languages, with other things. We have built up effectively uh, close to a monoculture. I'm not sure what word would be used for having only two or three choices. But when people evaluate, they're thinking about what extensions to one of those. They're They're not fundamentally asking themselves, well, is there an entirely different approach to this that would work?
2: At some point, obviously, these different systems that you're imagining, the corporate secrets being on a more secure system, whereas the, the desktop being on your standard windows or whatever would take its place, they're actually going to have to communicate at some point. Doesn't that just move the problem slightly downstream? Well, part of it is thinking about what communication is really
0: needed and how do we do that. Um, this is actually a problem that's been solved in some respects. Uh, in the military world, there is this notion of guards that allow only some kinds of communication traffic in each direction. S-Comp was originally written as a communications processor language for communicating with high secure systems. And it itself was uh, ended up being classified as a as an A1 system under the old Orange Book. So there are... Um, There are methods of monitoring the communication, but if you think about it, the Corporate Secrets system, if it's written correctly, doesn't need to download patches every week. It doesn't need to download updates to antivirus every week. It doesn't need to go out for browsing the World Wide Web. The kinds of communication that need to go back and forth can be batched, can be monitored through some kind of guard system, uh, or largely uh, be rendered unnecessary. But part of that is an architectural issue. We've got to actually think about the role of the systems, the role of the information, and what our overall business goal is. If security is one of the prime drivers rather than simply a secondary feature, uh, we may well be able to architect those, those uh, uh, big systems, not, not just individual computers, but collections of systems in a way that supports what we want and reduces communication but security
1: isn't a prime driver right now it's simply making profit and most people think of security as a way of that, something that's getting in in the way of profit the short term thinking of let's just patch it on the next cycle is uh, what really in most cases is is what's driving things and as you said in your presentation one of the problems that's looming is the long-term problem with patches where short-term it looks like the right thing to do, but long-term we're going to collapse underneath the weight of all the patches that need to be installed.
0: Yes. And I guess if you want to take away from part of my talk, it's that we don't have enough people taking a long view on anything on patching, on systems design, on recruitment and training of individuals, on release of information, on even national policy and, and, Instead, the view is always more heavily weighted towards near term, what do we do tomorrow, which tends to lock us in to certain paths for the long term as well. Those of us who work in the field, those of us who have some better awareness of what's going on, have a certain obligation to try to look at a longer term, to try to do a better job of shaping uh, the way those decisions are made. For the incident response community, this is particularly difficult because by nature, it is responding to what's happening in the near term. And it's very difficult to take a longer-term view when that is your day-to-day job, is looking at the short-term. So part of what I wanted to try to get across in the talk with some of the figures I gave and some of the historical perspective is to get people to realize that there is that longer term. They really do need to think in in that longer term. How effective that'll be, I don't know. But uh, this... This also goes to when I was saying. There's a difference between education and training. Training is a short-term response. Education is a long-term response.
2: We've got to get that balance right too. So how do we convince companies to, to stop evolving their products and just go back to the drawing board and really think about it? Because we're using Windows operating systems that at their very basis are still based on Windows NT technology from 10, 12, 15 years ago. All we're doing is evolving that product adding on additional features, fixing bugs, and then throwing it out there as a new operating system. Same with Linux, same with everything else. How do we get companies to really look at this, go back to the drawing board, and invest serious amounts of money and thought into something that's going to take us through the next 20 years? I think Windows actually
0: uh, was designed initially in 1987. So the fact that that's the technology we're still using despite moving ahead to uh, vast improvements in processor speed, networking speed, multi-core technology, um, should give people some pause. And Unix and Linux designed even before then, effectively, the, the base idea. But to your question, how do we have that happen? There are a couple different ways, traditionally, where these kinds of things occur. One is that something comes out of a research environment, that meets a particular need and therefore gets adopted there may be something in process now in a research environment somewhere in the world that has the feature set that i'm talking about that will make it adoptable Uh, in the past those kind of research issues had a low cost of entry they didn't have a big Startup around them; they didn't cost a lot of money. They were made available through the literature or online, and that's why they were widely accepted. That model no longer exists as such in uh, the academic environment. That's a problem, at least in the U.S. Now there may be other places in the world where we'll see some of this, but um, that's that's a common approach. is coming out of a research environment. A second possibility is something that comes out of a a small Lab or a small company that they will develop something new and put that to market, and that will become widely accepted. Uh, and then the third possibility is large companies willing to be disruptive. We don't see that as often. Uh, Apple switched from the old Mac OS unit-threaded system that they had to the base that was uh, built on top of Mach was a huge change and a major one for a major corporation to undertake. That kind of thing doesn't happen too often. IBM has been known to do that with some of their operating systems. It's possible we could see that from a large company. I'm not as confident that in today's market there'd be too many to be willing to embrace that, but it's possible. Of the three, I'm more inclined to believe the small company approach Looking at portable platforms, embedded systems, somebody will come up with a solution that's better suited for one of those, and it will find uh, it will find its legs in the marketplace
2: really we're kind of in a battle at the moment between what's easy to achieve and what's the right thing to do at the moment if If you have a product to bring to market, the easiest thing is i'll just put embedded linux on it there you go we're finished. do you think new people or new companies that are creating products are ever going to gonna make that leap and say, well, it's easier for me to put something else on there, but I really want to do it right from the ground up.
0: Well, it partly depends on the application area and the application. So I think we missed an opportunity early on where we had the transition into uh, uh, effectively small computers that include a cell phone. The opportunity to innovate and create something new the folks at uh, Nokia and uh, uh, Rim for the for the BlackBerry, they introduced new systems that were very interesting. Apple uh, with iOS had some innovation, although they did tie a lot back to their their Mac kind of platform and interface. But Windows Mobile is is not really innovative in the same sense. Android is not innovative um, as a as a system. I'm not sure where the next transition in a hardware platform will be, but whoever does it has an opportunity. Whether they'll take it or not, I don't know, but I see that as a possibility.
1: Now, another thing that you said during your talk is you pointed out that we, as instant responders, like to think of ourselves as firefighters, but we're actually more like digital janitors coming in and cleaning up. But you also called out the community because it is a more of a closed community. It is an insular community where we share information between ourselves, but not with organizations outside of the community, not with other companies or or people who aren't somehow tied to this community. Is that something you see that we can change easily, or do you think that that's going to be take another
0: cultural shift in some way and and, and some big event? I think it can be changed, but it's going to be difficult. I'm not, I'm not really deeply familiar with a lot of the first teams. I know some of them. And they're based in environments where the, the company the organization that is the parent organization doesn't like to share information. And so they, in some senses, grudgingly or with, with the strength of NDAs, are willing to allow participation. In, in FIRST and other kinds of fora, sets such as some of the community uh, sector teams that in the U.S., changing that is going to be a struggle because by nature, some of those organizations, particularly financial organizations, some defense organizations don't like to share. They don't like that information out. Uh, or they view it as trade secret, kind of how they handle things. And so NDAs are really part and parcel of what they do. I don't think uh, this is going to change as a result of an incident because an incident that's big enough to cause something is going to happen probably society-wide. It won't be just into the response teams. What I said towards the end of my talk, which is without a change in the inclusiveness, the openness, the uh, public nature of mission, incident response teams are likely to become passe because some of the things that they were meant to do when they started are now being handled by others, commercially or ad hoc. Uh, when there's a flaw, others report it or sell it. It isn't a matter of of just a, uh, reporting to a responsible party anymore. Uh, sharing incident response information, some of that is done with for-profit companies. Uh, the Mandians, Mantex, CrowdStrikes of the World... Uh, for example, uh, three examples that have really very good groups, but not only are doing incident response, but they're doing longitudinal tracking, and they're publicly identifying the perpetrators. I, I don't see the first teams doing that, and yet they're in a great position to be able to do that and to bring about an effect. So it's not going to be easy to change, but it's a question of are, are there is there if there's going to be continued re- relevance, I, I think that will have to begin.
1: Two twin concepts that you also brought towards the end of the talk was we need to be investing more in education for security. Um and you also brought in the, the thought that we don't have enough women in the security culture. We don't have enough women who find it a comfortable place to work in a comfortable environment and there's many of the ways we even think about security that are not necessarily conducive to including women in in some of the environments.
0: Yeah, women and and many underrepresented minorities, but women in particular are uh, an issue that's noticeable. And the education aspect, those all tie together, and they have to do with uh, a view of what the field is and who should be in it. It's not a field for hobbyists, although many people still view it that way. It's still the idea that if you... If you learn programming and you find flaws in your garage and you're able to to exploit them, suddenly, so you're a researcher or you're a professional. And that isn't the case anymore. The field is much more complex than that. And if you want to have somebody who's a professional, they really need to have a background in systems, in security. They need to know more, uh, some about psychology and law and, and other things. But There is such a pressing need for the people who have the hands-on immediate skills, the technological skills to set the dials, read the logs, trace back the the network packets, that employers and and others are willing to cut corners and take anybody who's able to show some expertise in that area. And we have these capture-the-flag competitions that glorify those who can do that kind of thing. We have pundits who don't understand the difference between training and education. Where training, we can take some individuals and teach them those immediate skills. But the underlying concepts about network design, about operating system design, about human behavior and human computer interfaces and so on, requires a longer, deeper educational process. That has to be valued, and we have to support that process and find ways uh, to value the people who pursue those approaches what I've seen as an educator and as a professional in the field is that women in particular uh, and some in the minority community uh, aren't really as comfortable being out front center in in that competitive environment being the ones to try this try that see what breaks through see what see what stops an attack uh, they Very often prefer to be a little bit quieter, more laid back, give deeper thought to things. We don't have competitions for that. We don't seem to value that in the same way. Until we do, and until we get away from the idea that it is a a hobby, where if somebody is particularly good with finding a particular set of flaws, that somehow makes them a a rock star, uh, we're going to continue to have an imbalance in the the, uh, composition of the field.
1: But security as a as a career is only about 25, 30 years old, really. It still is a, at a place in a, as a new career where we're taking the baby steps. We're hobbyists still, for the, the large part. Is it too soon to be asking for that sort of deep thought and that sort of, of educational system that encourages having people who have had a broader set of education instead of somebody who came up through the ranks by playing with their computers in the garage and going, oh, this is how it works. And then learning the, the broader implications through a lot
0: of hard experience. Um, I think there's room for both. And, and now it's probably not too soon. It's too soon to standardize because we are still learning there. Uh, but it's not too soon to recognize that there are differences that we want to have two different kinds. So for instance, it's still the case that uh kids, usually boys, will work in their garage and and rebuild the engine in their car and make it go faster or they'll do something unusual to the transmission or you know they'll 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 do it hands on they'll learn how it works they'll have their hands on the tools, but that doesn't mean that everybody who successfully gets their car running should be made an automotive engineer and designer at a at a car company We recognize a difference there and we have to start doing that in security is that there is a difference. People who know how to do things are incredibly valuable. We need them. We need the people who can, who can configure systems, administer them and do incident response. And that is a valued career path. But we also have to recognize that there's something more where we talk about security as a profession, that there is a, a broader and deeper set of skills And that we need to encourage that development, that the ones who are going to go on and set policy, who are going to be able to uh, communicate, who are going to be able to train others, who are going to design new systems, who are going to identify long-term trends, generally that's going to require a different skill set than somebody who can look at a packet trace and determine what exactly happened on the system
2: one of the issues that that I see is that there isn't really a clearly defined career path for someone working in Infosec. There's so many different areas that you can concentrate in, so many areas of interest, whether it's incident response, offensive, defensive research, various different aspects that you want to look at. And there's there's no way you can point at a roadmap and say, if this is where I want to be what do I need to do? Do I need the following education? Do I need to be a programmer? Do I, know, do I need to know system architecture and system design? Or is that not something where I need to focus on? I, mean, I know there's no hard and fast rule for anything to, in a career to say this is where I want to be, so this is everything I need to do. But in InfoSec, that really does seem to be lacking. There isn't really much in the way of guidance. And any kind of degrees that you can get are very generalistic. They're, very, they're not really focused on specific areas in InfoSec. They seem to consider that InfoSec is just one thing.
0: Well, I would agree that uh, there may be as many currently identified uh, career choices as about 40 uh, in the security field, and that includes also privacy as, as an area of interest. We're beginning to see some differentiation in academia, there are degrees in uh, privacy protection, systems architecture, systems operation. Uh, those are uh, being developed as specialty degrees. It's going to take some time. Um, as uh, Martin noted, That uh, uh, it is a young field, and we're still in the process of doing a lot of differentiation. As I noted in my talk, there are some basic concepts like even defining what security is or being able to measure it are, are beyond us at the moment in any formal way. So it will take some time to actually uh, uh, determine what goes into those. We do have uh, some generally accepted body of knowledge for security, for things that people should know generally in the field. Uh, We are developing some certifications for particular career paths that are far from perfect, but they're beginning to help identify. So that systems audit is different than systems architecture, is different from systems operation, is different from incident response. There are some basic skills that are common across all of those, and it is possible to teach those and learn those. But the people working in the field now are in some sense really pioneers who are helping to define that and, defi- and determine what's what needs to be done. And I think it's probably going to be another 20 years before we really begin to solidify some of these in a formal way to tell someone how they can pursue it. In the meantime, the best advice is get that general background knowledge and then see what excites you along the way as a path to pursue. And one of the other things that you brought up during the presentation was
1: the balkanization of the Internet, the legal and legislative aspects of security and our lawmakers. And quite frankly, right now, that's what scares me more than anything as to the basics, as to the fundamentals. I mean, that... And some of the bad decisions that are being made, not only in the U.S., but across the globe for legislative answers to some of these problems scare me. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, are you scared? Are you optimistic?
0: I'm troubled. I I don't know. I, I, I'm not pessimistic. I'm troubled. I, I think there is the potential for optimism because the pressures to isolate the pressures to control are visible and not a lot of people are going to be happy about that. They also interfere with commerce. And, uh, if anything from history teaches us that, that one does not interfere with commerce or religion because those things tend to lead to bad results. So what i what I think we might see is that, uh, economic backlash can have some effect uh, we 're seeing some of that in the u s so the the President appointing the Select Committee to evaluate what was being done in surveillance, the fact that uh, the House of Representatives that has basically done nothing for several years uh, passed a, a, um, a bill that included limits on the nsa 's ability to carry out some of the things it 's been alleged to have been doing uh, are both indications that yes, change can occur political pressure can make a difference. It's just how much needs to happen in enough places before that becomes widely accepted. So that's where I'm troubled, is because I don't think it's going to occur evenly around the world, and I don't think it's going to occur as quickly as we need it to, but I'm not pessimistic that it can't happen. We do
1: see a a lot of laws being passed in some territories where social media is being controlled. Um, And I'm not so certain that we're not seeing some of that starting to happen, even in the U.S. and the U.K. So I'm
0: I'm probably
1: a little bit more pessimistic than you are.
0: Well, um, at the time of this podcast, yesterday, Egyptian court just found a number of journalists um, guilty of effectively terrorism charges for reporting the news. Uh, that's causing already an outcry uh, in a number of other countries. How much that will impact the, the government there, I don't know, but I suspect it can have an impact. In the UK, it was decided that uh, monitoring social media, as long as the servers were outside uh, the UK, was allowable under a law. I suspect, as more of those kinds of things occur, people are going to be unhappy, maybe not maybe not as much in the u k as some other countries. Uh, but each of these incidents, as they become publicized, as people become aware of them, is likely to cause some pushback it 's very difficult to predict long term where all this goes i I think we 've seen in recent history that if people are frightened enough they 'll give up an awful lot of their, uh, their rights and their ability to actually complain. So one major terrorism incident could very well push everything to the back. But I, I do have a certain optimism long term that the transformation of the internet into a surveillance apparatus, uh, is, is not a foregoing conclusion.
2: Don't you feel that that some of the the solidification and and the legislation and the the laws that are coming out now to say, well, they are legally able to intercept communications in foreign countries, it's kind of been something that we've known for a while has been happening in the background. All of the NSA stuff that's happened over the last 12 months plus has been something that people who have any idea about the internet have thought, well, this must be going on. It's purely a case now that they're actually putting laws in place to say, well, now we're legally allowed to do what we've been doing anyway for the last couple of years. And, and now they're in that situation where there are laws being put into place. We've lost that privacy. And there's very little chance that someone's going to come along in five years and repeal that. And we're going to go back to having privacy again. Once privacy is lost, it's very hard to regain.
0: Well, there's, there are different kinds of, of, uh, private and privacy of records or Privacy of records is uh, is one kind, and yes, once records are exposed, you you can't take them back again. But surveillance of actions, of behavior, of tying identity to things, uh, those are recoverable uh, to some extent. Uh, you can surveil me now and see what I did, but we can stop the surveillance, and now and what going forward, then I have I have a new uh, space of privacy. The The laws that are getting passed now are a first reaction to the fact that it's come to light what was being done. And to some extent, there is a valid rationale for why some of that observation is being done. There has been bad behavior. There are actors who want to cause really widespread disruption uh, on the order of terrorism groups that were they to have a biologic or nuclear weapon, they would unleash it in a major population center. I mean, these, these are extremists who really have no respect at all for human life or civil, civil behavior. So, that's a big threat, or was a big threat, may still be. I don't know, uh, what kind of capabilities they have that warranted a certain, certain level of observation and behavior. As that's become more known, people have gotten concerned, there have been pushback, and so some laws have gotten passed to try to justify the behavior. If it continues and people become more aware of what it is that's being done, greater pushback is likely to occur, and some of those laws can be undone. One of the one of the examples that comes to mind to me for the U.S., which is the model I'm most familiar with, was the internment of Japanese Americans at the beginning of World War II. The fact that simply that they had Japanese parentage, or in some cases Korean or Chinese, they they simply looked oriental, caused them to be uprooted from their homes and moved to internment camps for several years. It was clearly illegal. It was It was clearly the wrong thing to do. And yet... At the time of war, at the time of conflict, because the threat was considered so great, uh, it was done as a matter of expediency. Now, as we go forward, not only has that been undone and unwound, but in fact there have been a lot of discussion, a lot of observation about that, about how we shouldn't do that again, about how that was a problem. We tried to learn from that. Even some reparations. Uh, ha- have have occurred. That kind of example, again, is something that gives me a little bit of hope that it is possible to undo some of the things that were done in the heat of of the 9-11 and, and subsequent actions. You're right that there are some losses of privacy that can never be undone. And we have to face that. But I think, in some respects, the bigger threat are from the commercial entities that are collecting our information, not from the government's that, uh, there's not an easy way to undo that. This whole issue of information privacy is one that crosses many cultural boundaries and the notion of what privacy is and what people should be allowed are, uh, are very different from each other. And that's, that's a discussion that we have yet to really fully engage in. So Jane, we've kind of gotten to the depths of despair in some of this conversation,
1: um, we'd like to kind of close out with what has you optimistic? What are you seeing there? What are you seeing in some of the training and some of the, the the education that you're doing um, that leaves you optimistic for the next generation of security professionals?
0: Well, I'm optimistic by uh, some of the things that I mentioned here, uh, seeing public pushback, seeing some changes, seeing organizations getting together and being concerned about some of these issues. That makes me optimistic because they're, there are people who aren't going to sit still with that. I look at the students that come through my program and others, um, and uh, they have a lot of hopes, a lot of energy. They're they're learning the tools that they can use, and that makes me feel good about uh, the future. There aren't enough of them, and we don't have enough support for that process. But it's not a null set, and there's some very good people who are who are in the field now. Uh, this conference is full of them. Many of whom have been here for decades, and some for only a few years. And that always makes me feel optimistic. Uh, to to see the energy and the intelligence and the drive that these people have, so I don't I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Um, I, I think discussing some of these issues, though, will help us to frame the questions that we need to ask. And in the uh, in the long term, can't predict the future, uh, but the possibilities have not been shut off to us. And as long as we continue to fight the good fight and ask the hard questions, uh, I think there's a there's a good chance.
2: What's well, nice to hear after the the doom and gloom of our discussion today, there's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe uh, somewhere we can we can head, and if we really concentrate, maybe we can we can get to that nirvana of 100% security, if it even exists, or at least move in that direction. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to us. It was a very enjoyable conversation. Hope to uh, maybe catch up with you in another 20 years, at the 46th annual first conference. at that point. I hope I'm
0: still able to speak intelligently at that point. So thank you very much. Computer activated virus
2: this is Chris-John from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. And this is Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast. You've been listening to the official first podcast for the 26th annual FIRST Conference, June 22nd to the June 27th in Boston, Massachusetts. You can find out more at www.first.org. Thank
1: you and goodbye, folks.